0: Galatians chapter 5, we're going to read from verse 2 to verse 12, Galatians 5, 2, 2 to 12, verse 2, behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, Are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look now at this passage, at these very, very strong words, hard words, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us think about them together this morning. We recognize their difficulty. We recognize, Lord, that not all Christians agree on how to interpret it. We pray, Lord, that you would instruct us and teach us in the Holy Spirit today. We pray, Lord, that our understanding, Lord, would increase. And Lord, that we would leave here this morning strengthened and edified and encouraged. And Lord, that the pride of man would be abased and that that you would be honored and you alone would be glorified. Thank you for this time in the word. We commit it to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are confronted and forced to face this morning, within our passage, a rather difficult theological problem. A thorny theological problem, both complicated and perplexing. A problem where there is no perfect agreement uh, in the Christian church. Don't you just love what happens when there is no central intelligence agency telling you what you must and must not believe. No organization that says, hey, when we make a decision, the thinking's been done. Don't, just, don't, don't go contrary to what we think. They force you to just conform to their thinking. We have to think and wrestle for ourselves with the Holy Scriptures. Now, some people might not like that. They think it's a lot easier for me just to turn off my mind and just be told all the time what to believe. And then we can have perfect uniformity. Perfect uniformity. Everyone can agree. Reality is, though, is that that's not actually us thinking. That's not actually us understanding for ourselves. We should be suspicious if everybody agrees all the time on everything, right? The Reformation actually took us back to the days of the early Christian centuries. And you know... In the days of the early Christian centuries, there was no overlord organization that was enforcing uh, their doctrine upon everybody. And so in the early days of Christianity, in the early centuries, there was actually a lot of disagreement about many things in the Bible, much like there is today. Some of the early Christian writers talk about how there's lots of different denominations even in sects in the early days. So the Reformation brought the Bible to us again and said, hey, you read it, you think about it, let's talk about it, what do you think? And of course, inevitably, there's going to be disagreement, but at least now we're thinking and understanding for ourselves. Now, let's make no mistake, however, brothers and sisters, that there are countless things in the Bible that are non-negotiable. There are countless things in the Bible that are non-negotiable. I'm going to move over here, I feel (laughs) off-center. All right. I feel like I'm with these guys more than those guys. (laughs) There are countless things in the Bible that are non-negotiable, right? What I mean is that the Bible is clear, and all biblical Christians agree on these things, that the Bible teaches this. This isn't up for debate. If you read the Bible, you'll come to see these things, such as there is one God, right? The Bible teaches there's one God and not many gods. A belief in many gods is false. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a negotiable thing for people to argue about. If you read the Bible, it's there. If you argue about it, you're not reading the Bible. Eternal judgment is another non-negotiable in the Bible. And of course, the gospel of righteousness through faith alone is something that's clear in the Bible. That's what the Bible teaches. If you're a biblical Christian, you'll see and agree that righteousness is through faith apart from works. It's not something we have to earn. Amen? It's not something we have to work for. It's not something we have to keep commandments for. It's something Jesus gives us freely. But, while acknowledging there's these things in the Bible that are not negotiable, we must also acknowledge as Christians that there there are lots of difficult things in the Bible that are hard to understand, and there is room for disagreement among Christians or at the very least, patience. Amen? So I can understand why someone doesn't agree with me on this particular point or that particular point. makes sense. The Bible's not very easy all the time to understand. And so at the very least, patience, and at the very most, there's room for disagreement. So what is this problem that we're faced with here in Galatians, the passage that we read? The problem that we're confronted with is the difficult problem, and I underscore the word difficult. The difficult problem of apostasy. That is falling away. Apostasy. By apostasy I mean falling away or defecting or deconversion. You're all familiar with the word. Now, I'm not interested this morning in the concept of apostasy in general, I'm not going to be talking about apostasy in general, apostasy from Islam, apostasy from Mormonism, apostasy from atheism. I pray to God that there would be more such apostasy in this world. People (laughs) falling away from lies and coming to the truth. But specifically, the problem we're confronted with here is the question of apostasy in Christianity. Apostasy from Christ, falling away from the truth which is what it appears the Galatians are doing here, right? Paul came to Galatia, he set up the churches, they were following his gospel, he says in verse 7, you were running well, and all of a sudden false teachers are coming to Galatia, and these men and women at Galatia, who were running well, Paul says, are, according to his words, defecting from Christ. The problem of apostasy in Christianity is often posed this way, the question is often posed this way. Can a Christian lose their salvation? Have you ever heard that question before? Can a, have you ever thought about that question before? Can a Christian lose their salvation? It's a question that is hotly debated. There are those who say no. A Christian cannot lose their salvation. And those who say no believe in what we call the doctrine of eternal security. That is, that a Christian is eternally secure. Once you're a Christian, you're safe forever. It's also called once saved, always saved, or it goes by another name, the perseverance of the saints. And then there are those in the Christian church who say, yes, a Christian can lose their salvation. They believe in the doctrine of conditional security. That means you're safe upon the condition that you are believing. If you don't believe, if you you apostatize from Christ, you are no longer safe. You can lose your salvation if you do not persevere in the faith. And so real Christians disagree about this. This morning, I'd like to discuss this problem as it relates to the Galatians and recognizing the difficulty of the problem. And again, I underscore the word difficulty. I'd like to lay forth my own personal view. I'd like to lay forth an answer to this question that may not be satisfying to all, but that I personally believe does justice to the biblical data, all the biblical data. Because when you're dealing with any question like this or theological question, you have to make sure that we have to Examine your view and take into account everything, all the data that the Bible says on these matters, right? And not isolate yourself to one place. Before we begin, though, I'd like to say two things about this. While Christians can disagree on whether a Christian, a real Christian, can apostatize or not, all agree, all biblical Christians will agree, and this is not a negotiable, That if there is such a thing as apostasy, or when we're talking about apostasy, what we're talking about is defecting from the faith. We're talking about defecting from the faith. If salvation can be lost, it's lost by departing from the faith, not by sinning. We're not saying here that a person can put their trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. They're not trusting in their works. They're trusting in Christ. But if they sin, if they commit lawless deeds, if they behave poorly, they can forfeit their salvation. We're not saying that. And if we were saying that, we wouldn't be Christians, would we? Because we'd basically be saying that salvation depends upon your works. Salvation depends upon your moral behavior. Salvation depends upon you keeping God's commands. Something besides faith. So the question here, just to be clear, is... Whether a Christian can defect from the faith, and if they leave the faith, do they lose their salvation? That's the question. And the other thing I'll say is that while Christians may disagree on this issue, and while we may debate this issue, what is of utmost importance is not that we are right, merely, but what is of utmost importance, according to Paul, in the passage itself, is faith working Through love. Look at verse 6. Notice what value Paul puts on faith working through love. He says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but here's what really matters faith working through love. What ultimately matters is that we believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation, and as saved believers, we serve one another in love. That's really what is important. And Paul's going to talk a lot more about faith working through love in the uh, in the coming chapter, as we go on in the chapter, in the next two, and later in chapter five and chapter six. Brad reminded me on Friday as we were talking about this very point. That when we disagree and when we debate about things, what is ultimately important is not merely that we're right, but that we love one another and that we have love in our hearts. Amen. Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where Paul says, you can know all the mysteries in the Bible. You can have all knowledge. But if you don't have love, you're really nothing. If you don't have love, you're nothing. And I say that because so often these issues that we debate about, we can forget love. We can forget patience and kindness and gentleness and looking out for one another. And all we just want to be is right. Now to be sure... It is important to discover and know truth. And ironically, even our ability to love one another and to serve one another in love does depend in, in, in many ways upon our knowledge. But it shouldn't stop at knowledge. It shouldn't be an either-or thing. I'm not saying here doctrine is not important. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying knowledge is not important. I'm not saying just forget about doctrine and just let's love each other. That's going to that's gonna just decay real quick. What I am saying is that it doesn't have to be either or, and it should not be either or. Being right on these matters is important, but letting the truth produce love in us is even more important. And let's let it not just stop at wanting to be right. There's a, there's a famous, well-known Christian saying, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I think that's a good rule for us as Christians. Amen? So with that, let's look at this passage. Let's turn our attention to Paul's solemn warning to his readers in Galatia. Look at verse 2. Now in verse 2, consider that Paul may have just, he may have said, or he may have, he could have said, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you he could have said that he doesn't say that he adds a solemn preface for emphasis behold i paul say to you that if you receive circumcision christ will not benefit you so he doesn't just make the he doesn't just state the point he actually prefaces it for emphasis behold most commentators read in this behold a kind of mark my words pay very close attention here. I'm holding up a big beware of, doc, beware of false doctrines sign to get their attention, Paul says this, and adds, I, Paul, behold, listen, pay attention, look up, beware, I, Paul, the apostle, and your friend, you know me, I was with you, we spent time together, I love you. That's why I'm telling you these things. You know I care for you. As the apostle and your friend, I'm warning you that if you go along with the false teachers who are trying to pull you away from faith in Christ, what will happen? What does Paul say if they go along with these false teachers who are coming to them and say, hey, faith alone is not going to save you. Faith alone is not going to justify you, friends. Faith alone is not going to get you into God's family or his kingdom. You have to be circumcised and submit yourselves to the law of God. Only if you obey God's commands will you be saved. What does Paul say in verse 2 will happen to them if they follow that false teaching? Christ will be of not much benefit to you. Is that what he says? (laughs) Christ will be of less benefit to you Christ will not benefit you in certain ways. In other ways he will, but in some ways he won't. <laughs> That's not what he says. In fact, the Greek word is not no. The Greek word is nothing. That's the word he uses. Christ will, be, Christ will benefit you nothing. Now how many of you would like that? How many of you would like to have a, a relationship to Christ in which he benefits you nothing? Nothing. Think of nothing for a minute. To you, it would be as if there was no Christ. Christ never came into the world. If you follow these Judaizers, he'll benefit you nothing. It would be as if he didn't even exist. He didn't come into the world. He didn't die for your sins. He didn't rise from the dead. He didn't ascend into heaven and is interceding for you right now. He'll benefit you nothing. It's as if he never existed and you are facing God all alone. You are facing God judgment day all alone how many of you would like that <laughs> well you know the galatians didn't like that either the galatians wouldn't read that and say no big deal we don't want christ anyway the galatians want jesus the, Gala- the galatians are believers in jesus this is a thing that often gets missed is that the galatians believe that jesus is the messiah who came into the world, died on the cross for their sins, rose from the dead, and came to benefit them. And so Paul's warning them, I know you guys want to be benefited by Christ, but if you follow after this false teaching, if you depart from the faith, he won't benefit you. He'll benefit you nothing. They didn't want that. They believed in Jesus, and here's the interesting thing. In the Galatians' mind, or in the false teacher's mind, being circumcised and following the law, or trying to obtain righteousness through the law, in their mind, was actually what Jesus wanted them to do. They thought the Messiah of God has come into the world, and what does he want us to do? If we we believe he's the Messiah, what is he calling us to do? He's calling us to be righteous through the law. So if we really believe in him, the proof of our faith will be that we submit to circumcision and seek to keep the commandments. That's what what they're thinking. So in their mind, what do you mean I don't... This is my faith being manifested, Paul. Paul. I do believe in him. He, this submission to circumcision in the law is in keeping with Christ's wants. But in this they were greatly in error. The scholar J.C. Becker says this, What the Galatians perceived to be a necessary supplement to their faith, Paul views as a radical break from faith. So they think they're okay here. And there's many people today, would you agree with me? There's many people today who think that they are Christians and that they're doing the right Christian thing because they think, I believe in Jesus. That makes me a Christian, doesn't it? And furthermore, not only do I believe in Jesus, but I think Jesus wants me to keep commandments. And I manifest my faith in Jesus by pursuing obedience and righteousness through his commandments and through the law i mean come on the the proof that i really believe in jesus is that i'm going to be trying to keep his commandments and be righteous through the law and many people think what do you mean i'm not a christian i believe in jesus they don't seem to understand that just simply believing in jesus does not make you a christian what do you understand about jesus is the issue when you believe in him what really are you believing And many people, just like these Galatians, don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand what believing him, in him is all about. If you are working for righteousness, that is not a proof of faith in Christ. Amen. If you're working to be righteous, that is not a proof of faith in Christ. That is a perversion of faith in Christ. Because what Jesus wants you to do is to trust in him for your righteousness, to trust in him and in him completely for your righteousness, to trust what, that what he did is enough for you to be righteous. That's what faith in Jesus is all about. If you don't believe in him with that understanding, it doesn't matter if you go to church and it doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian, it doesn't matter if you're trying really hard, you don't know Christ and he will not have a benefit to you. Do you want Christ to benefit you? then let him benefit you. And don't try to play his role and benefit yourself. If you want him to benefit you, then let him do it. Thank you, Jesus, for benefiting me, coming into the world and dying for me and giving me this gift. But if you're trying to attain salvation through what you do, you're not letting Christ benefit you. You're trying to benefit yourself, playing his role. And Jesus will not be a partial Savior. Look at verse 3. Paul says the same thing again in verse 3 that he says in verse 2, but he says it a little bit differently. The fact that he repeats himself again shows that he is emphasizing this warning, and it shows how serious this warning is. Paul says in verse 3, here's your alternative. If you want to be circumcised and keep the law, Christ will be of no benefit to you, and here's what you're left with if he's no benefit to you. You are left to yourself to be righteous by the law. And if you're going to be left to yourself to be righteous by the law, if you're not going to trust in him completely, then you have to keep the law completely. That's your only two options, friends. That's it. For you personally, you either trust in Christ completely or you keep the law completely. That's your only two options. I'm sure the agitators told them that they had to keep the law too. The agitators would have said, look, now when you get circumcised, don't think it's just getting circumcised. You're submitting to also obeying the law. That's standard Jewish conversion. But Paul's emphasis here is on not just you have to keep the law, but you have to keep the whole law. You have to do it all. And I can just see the the troublers, if they were in a conversation with Paul, I can just see it kind of going like this. Paul says, now I'm telling you, you have to keep the whole law. And they're saying, yeah, yeah, I know. And he says, no, no, I'm not kidding. You have to keep all of the commandments. I know, yes, I get it. Yes, I have to keep all the commandments, everything God says. No, no, you're not understanding. You have to keep everything. You have to. And if you don't, you're dead. What? Wait, all of it? No, that's too much. That's too hard. The difference here, Paul is not kidding. If you want to be justified by the law, if you want to present to God your good works and say, okay, God, I hope I'm good enough. I hope I, I can be justified through what I've done. You have to do it all. And God is not kidding. You cannot choose bits and pieces of the law. If you choose the way of law, you choose it all. I find it fascinating in so many conversations I've had with non-Christian religious people. And I talk to them about grace. And I talk to them about salvation through faith alone, not by works. And the thing I often hear is, what are you saying? I can just go out and murder? I can just go out and commit adultery on my wife and I'll still be saved? Yeah, right. Come on, you can't do those things and be saved. What are they doing? They're picking and they're choosing what parts of the law they want to uphold. See, in them it's absurd. You can't be a murderer and an adulterer and go to heaven. You can't do that. Oh, so you want to go down that road of, of making yourself acceptable to God through what you do. Okay, why stop at murder and adultery? There's a lot more in the law than just murder and adultery, right? And what they're doing is they're just isolating and they're just picking and choosing the ones that they haven't done, so they think, so that they can feel good about themselves, Right. James chapter 2, verse 10 says it in a classic statement. Whoever keeps all the law and yet offends in one point is guilty of all. You have to do it all. Paul's point here is you have to do it all. And in chapter 3, he says what follows from that is that if you're under the law, if you are seeking justification by works, you are therefore under a curse. You are therefore condemned to hell because you are not doing it all. And that's what it requires, and God is not kidding. God couldn't be more explicit, and yet men still refuse to believe that. And so Paul is saying here, hold on. Before you go down that road, you need to count the cost. You need to count the cost. It kind of reminds me of what Jesus said. If anyone's going to be my disciple, let them count the cost first. You're going to follow me? You're going to believe what I'm teaching? Okay, let's just consider what this is going to lead to. And of course, what is the cost? What comes with being a disciple of Jesus? Well, first of all, believing in Jesus Christ, following his teaching, brings with it free salvation, something you don't have to work for at all, and the hatred of the world. That's what, he's, that's what Jesus is saying when he says you need to count the cost, because look, they're going to kill me, they're going to kill you too. You need to take up your cross because they're going to put me on one. So yes, you'll get free salvation, but you'll get the hatred and the persecution of the world because what my teaching is so offensive to this world. Look at Galatians 5.11. Paul makes this clear. If I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Because if I did that, then the offense of the cross or the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. If I... Still taught, like these guys taught, that in order to be saved, you have to keep the commandments and you have to be righteous by what you do. No one's going to be upset with me. Everybody will agree with me. Everybody will be happy that I see it their way. But because I don't preach it that way, but I preach the cross, therefore I give offense and I receive persecution. What is the offense of the cross, brothers and sisters? Why is the cross so offensive? And why is it a stumbling block? I'll tell you why it's not. The cross is not a stumbling block because crucifixion is a rather icky thing. Okay, Crucifixion is nasty. I don't deny it. But that is not why the cross is offensive and why Paul is persecuted for preaching it. Because the cross is a nasty, icky thing. Don't look over there. That's bloody and painful. That's not the offense of the cross. Nor is the offense of the cross simply that salvation is free. It's a little bit deeper than that. But the the, the offense of the cross is this. The preaching of the cross is offensive to man because what we're proclaiming is that the death that Jesus died is your death. That Jesus died for your sins. You see what happened to him? That's what God thinks about you. You see how he was treated? And don't just consider it from a human perspective, but also consider that God delivered him up. God forsook him to be crushed by men. God delivered him into the hands of men to, be suffered like, to suffer like that. He died your death. He died for your sins. You cannot be saved apart from the death of Christ. And in Galatians 2.21, Paul says that if righteousness came by the law, Christ died for nothing. The preaching of the cross proclaims that you have no righteousness. If you had righteousness, if you were a good person, if God thought you were swell, No need. No need for the death of Jesus. There's no need for it. And so the very fact that he died and that he died for our sins is a proclamation that you and I have no righteousness. The cross implies the worthlessness of man's righteousness. The cross implies God's wrath and anger upon man's unrighteousness. And that is the offense that people don't like to hear. No one wants to hear that they're unrighteous. All of your good deeds are filthy rags. And you know what God thinks of you? He has wrath and anger towards you. In fact, you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in this. You're going to go before God on judgment day. He's not going to look at you and say, You know, you really did good that you, you were a good father, a good son. I saw you give the money to charity a couple times. Come on in. <laughs> what a shock and an offense to tell someone That, you know, if you stand before God and our judge, he will send you to hell. And that's what you deserve in his sight. You're not good. How do you know that? Because Jesus died for your sins. Because if you were good, he would never have needed to have done that. And he suffered and bore your penalty. God laid your sins on him and crushed him. Because that is how you are. You're unrighteous. You deserve wrath and you always will if you seek righteousness by your works. Only when you put your faith in Christ can you be saved. And so you need to count the cost. Yes, following Christ means free salvation, brothers and sisters, but you will receive the hatred of the world. Count the cost. Are you ready for that? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Sign me up, Jesus. I don't care if the world hates me. I'm believing the truth. Paul is saying now to the Galatians, you need to count the cost of being a disciple of these false teachers. Because here's the the deal that you're going to get. The cost of following these false teachers is this. First of all, you won't be hated by the world. That's one thing that's going to come with following them. No more persecution, no more offense. That's great. But with that comes no benefit from Christ and you must keep all the law. There's your options. So what do you think is better, brothers and sisters? Free salvation and the hatred of the world or no hatred of the world and no benefit from Christ and having to keep it all? There's only two kinds of people in the world, those who are benefited by Christ and who are free from the law and those who have no benefit from Christ and are under the law and having to do it all. In fact, there's a play on words in the Greek that you can't see in the English. The Greek word for benefit here is o and the Greek word for obligation here is and so if you read it in the Greek, there's actually a play on words. You're either benefited or you're under obligation. You can't have it either way. John Stott says, You cannot have it both ways. It is impossible to receive Christ, thereby acknowledging that you cannot save yourself, and then receive circumcision, thereby claiming that you can. You can't have one foot in grace and one foot in law. Look at verse 9. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You want to go down the road of law-keeping? You think you're only adding one little thing to your faith in Jesus Christ? You think that Jesus is going to do 99% of all the saving and you have to do at least one little percent of all the saving? Well, guess what? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You put a little legalism in there and it's all legalism now. It doesn't matter how much Jesus will do for you. If you don't do your thing, it's over. So it's all on you. You can't have one foot in law and you can't have one foot in grace. Christ is either everything or he's nothing. He's either all of your righteousness or he's none at all. And so now we come to verse 4. Verse 4 is the key verse. It's the crux of our theological problem this morning. If the Galatians follow the teachers, the false teachers, is their case a case of real Christians who are saved, falling away from salvation. Look at verse 4. You, here's, the, here's what he says. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. That's a, that's a hard verse, isn't it? So the question is, okay, okay, You're severed from Christ, you've fallen from grace, if you're seeking to be justified by law. If the Galatians go down that road, is that a case of real Christians losing their salvation? Now, as I said, there are some who say yes. They say this is a very simple case. The Galatians were saved, the Galatians were real Christians, and then the Galatians got deceived, went down the path of destruction, and they lost their salvation, and, they, and, that's, and that's as simple as this case is. Real Christians can lose their salvation. And I must confess, brothers and sisters, that the language of this verse is quite unambiguous. You have been severed from Christ, the language is quite unambiguous. You were with Him, and then you were severed from Him, you were there. You had him. You were in a relationship. And then it was severed. The only other time this phrase is used in the New Testament is in Romans chapter 7, verse 2, where Paul is talking about the relationship of husband and wife. And there he says that as long as the, husband is, the spouse is alive, the husband is alive, that the wife is bound by the law to her husband. But if the husband dies, she's severed from the law of her husband. She was there in that relationship, and it was, it was uh, a union that was undissolvable until he dies, and then a severance takes place. And then in the next part of the verse, it says you've fallen from grace. In fact, the Greek word is even stronger than fallen. It is literally you've fallen out of grace. That's literally the word he uses. In fact, literally the phrase is, you've fallen out of the grace. You have fallen out of the grace if you go down that path. What is the grace? The grace is the gospel that he's been talking about from the very beginning. If you turn back to chapter 1, verse 6. In 1, verse 6, you can see a similar statement to what he's saying here in verse 4. And he's amazed that He says to the Galatians, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him, deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ into another gospel. So, as I said, based upon this very unambiguous language, many people say that this is a simple case of people losing their salvation. Here's another strength of this view this view accounts. For many of the warnings in the New Testament about falling from Christ. This view that you can lose your salvation, you can fall from Christ, seems to honor those warnings in Scripture about that very thing. Think of the book of Hebrews, for example. The book of Hebrews is a book that's warning people not to lose their confidence in Jesus Christ and his salvation. God has spoken to us. We've heard his voice. If you depart from him, if you stop listening to his voice, and if you go away from him and let that slip, there there is no salvation for you. The book of Hebrews seems to be warning them about apostasy. First and second Peter talk about uh, Peter gives warnings about apostasy, departing from faith. The book of Jude talks about apostasy and warns them about that. First and second Timothy. The Apostle Paul seems to give some examples of apostasy in the the persons of Hymenaeus, Alexander, and Demas who shipwrecked their faith. And the book of Revelation says that it's those who overcome. They're in the midst of conflict. Jesus says to one of the churches, look, you're going to be thrust into tribulation and you're going to be tested for 10 days. And those who overcome, I will give the crown of life. So in the book of Revelation, it seems like you're in the midst of this battle, and if you overcome, you'll get the crown of life. So this view that you can lose your salvation seems to have a strength in the language of the verse and also in taking into consideration the warnings of the New Testament about apostasy. And yet, the trouble with this view is that it doesn't take into account verses about the eternal security of the Christian. To say that Christians, real Christians, can fall away from salvation, and that's just how simple it is, doesn't take into account the verses about eternal security in the scriptures. And I'd like to just look at a few of them. John chapter 6, please turn to John chapter 6. And this, this is such an encouraging thing to do, is look at some of these verses about the security of believers. John 6, verse 39. In John chapter 6, verse 39, Jesus says that this is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of God that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up. On the last day. And so Jesus actually says here that the will of God is that all that He has given to me, and here He's referring to people, all that He has given me, I won't lose anything, but I'll raise Him up on the last day. And there's a counterpart verse to this in John chapter 10, John chapter 10, verse 26. John ten twenty six. You do not believe me because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So here he says, my sheep, they know me, they follow me. In another spot he says, they don't follow a stranger. If you're my sheep, they won't follow after a stranger. And I give them eternal life, they won't perish. And they're in the Father's hands, and they cannot be snatched out of the Father's hand. So there's that message here of security, that I'll lose nothing. And that none will be lost. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 and verse 29. Verse 28. Let's look at verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28. Paul says, We know that God. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Notice in all of these passages so far, the emphasis seems to be on God being the one who keeps us safe, right? He gives them to me. They're in his hand. No one can snatch them out of his hand. And he is the one who works all things together for the good of those who believe. He predestined them and he called them whom he called. He justified whom he justified. He glorified. It's all of those things come Together. Ephesians chapter one and verse thirteen. Ephesians one, thirteen. In verse 13, Paul says that in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, that's the guarantee, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So, what a statement of security there. When you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You were given a guarantee that you will be glorified to the praise of God's glory. Philippians chapter 1. Turn over to the next book. Verse 6. This is a, fam- a favorite verse for eternal security here. Philippians 1 verse 6. I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, or he'll carry it on until the day of Christ Jesus. In Paul's understanding, what was going on there with the Philippians was the work of God, and because God began the work, God will continue that work until the very end. And finally, 1 John chapter 5, and there's so many more, but we'll just look at this verse. 1 John chapter 5, 1 John 5, verse 4. I think think this is probably my favorite verse on eternal security. And it says here, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So even though, as I was saying in Revelation, yes, Jesus says, he who overcomes will receive the crown of life. Yes, we're in the midst of a battle. Yes, there's the need to overcome. But yet there's this assurance and this promise here that what is born of God will overcome. It's not by overcoming that you become born of God. But you overcome because you are born of God. So... Going back to Galatians, there are those who say, yes, this is a simple case of losing your salvation. And then there are those who say, no, no, this is not a simple case of just simply real Christians losing their salvation. Because you have to take into, consider, into consideration these passages on eternal security about, about God preserving and, and giving to Christ those who will not be lost. And among those who say, no, this is not about real Christians losing their salvation in Galatians, there's two ways that this is explained, two different ways at least that this is explained. I'm sure there's many others, but here are the two. I, I can't tell you how many commentaries I read it when I was studying this, but there's two main views that commentators give as to why, as to how they explain this is not talking about losing salvation or real Christians losing salvation. And the first is this. This is the first explanation. That the Galatians are not jeopardizing their salvation by going to the law. Rather, they are only by going to the law and following after these false teachers affecting their Christian walk in life. This is one way commentators explain how this isn't talking about really losing a real Christian losing their salvation—they're not losing their salvation by going after these false teachers. They're affecting the Christian walk. Samuel Mikolaski, Canadian theologian, says this. He believes this view: fallen away from grace doesn't fallen away from grace does mean. Oh, excuse me, I got up a typo. Falling away from grace does not mean falling away from salvation. Rather, they have dropped away from a life bound up with grace to an existence bogged down by legalism. So this is how it is explained. They're not losing their salvation. They're just going to become legalistic Christians. They're going to go to heaven, but for the rest of their life, it's not going to be so fun. Of course, the strength of this view is that it honors those scriptures about eternal security that real christians are safe real christians will overcome the world but here is what i see as the deficiency of this view first of all i don't think that the letter of galatians would be as urgent if that was simply the problem. You see the point? If the only problem here is not that they're going to lose their salvation, but that their life will not be as free, I don't think Paul would write such an urgent and scathing letter. I mean, he would write a letter and he would warn them and he would say, hey, this is a bad path to go down for sure, but I don't think it would be as scathing and as urgent In his warnings. And secondly, I don't think this view really accounts for the strength of the language in verse 4. No benefit. Christ will benefit you nothing. Seems like that view is saying Christ will still benefit you in some way, but just not in every way. Also, it says here in verse 4 that the Galatians are seeking to be justified by the law. It doesn't say they're seeking to just be sanctified or to live their life by the law, but they're seeking to be justified by the law. And in chapter 4, verse 11, look at what Paul says about his fear for them. When he gets this news, I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. He's afraid that his ministry there might have been in vain, that they didn't actually grasp the gospel, that they actually weren't real Christians. And I think that if the problem was simply they were real Christians, but they were going back to some sort of legalism in life, I don't think Paul would say, I've labored in vain for you guys. I think he would say, my ministry there was very effective. You guys are saved. You're going to heaven. This is great. It wasn't all in vain. So I think this isn't the the way to answer the, the problem. And it is best to agree with those who say, who say that this is about losing salvation. This is a warning about going to the law and being severed from Christ and losing your salvation. Like the other books, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and Revelation. But the problem then remains, how do we reconcile apostasy from Christ, losing your salvation, or walking away from salvation with eternal security? And here's the other way, and this is the last thing we'll consider and this is, what, this is the, the view that I believe does most justice to the biblical data. And it's this. If the Galatians fall away, if the Galatians fall away and follow after those false teachers and try to be justified by the law and depart from Christ, by doing so, they manifest that they were not really born again. So the seriousness is maintained. If they follow after those false teachers, Paul's not just saying, you know, your life will become legalistic. He's saying, you're, gonna, you're going to perish. You're going, Christ will have no benefit for you. But if they do that, it manifests that they were not really Born of God. That is, it manifests that their faith that they had was not God's work. I'm not saying that the Galatians didn't believe. But what I am saying is that they were not born of God. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 8? Luke chapter 8. <clears throat> And Jesus, this this is a parable we're all familiar with. And I believe that what Jesus is saying here in Luke chapter 8 is what is going on in the book of Galatians. And we'll just look at one verse here at first. Luke chapter 8 verse 13. And Jesus says that the, those on the rocky soil, you remember this is the parable of the sower. The farmer goes out and sows his seed. Some fall on different soils. And in Luke 8 13, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear the word of God, they receive the word with joy. That's a good thing. And these have no root. They believe for a while. And in time of temptation, they fall away. Now, Jesus is not saying that this is a good thing. He's saying that in this parable, there's four different kinds of soils, and only one of them is really good. This is a bad thing. But yet, nonetheless, even though in time of temptation, they fall away and apostatize from the faith. Jesus nonetheless declares that when they heard the word, they received it with joy and believed for a while. Now this raises the question, however, what therefore is the difference between faith that is born of God and faith that is not? If they heard the word of God and they believed it for a while and fell away, and yet we also read that the faith that overcomes the world, uh, that which overcomes the world is our faith, and all who are born again overcome the world, what is the difference between faith that is born of God and faith that is not? The most obvious answer immediately is that the one endures and the one does not. But still, that doesn't answer the question because we might ask, why does one endure and why does one not endure? Why does one fall away in time of temptation, and why does one not fall away in time of temptation? And look at verse 15. When Jesus describes those who have good soil, or are good soil, he says that the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, my translation says. Now, don't be confused by that language, honest and good. Jesus isn't saying those people were morally good people. The the, the Greek words meaning it was a healthy heart. It was what a heart should be. It was a noble and good functioning heart. So the others heard the word with joy and received it for a while and they fell away. But in verse 15 it says that those are the ones who heard the word in a noble or honest and good heart and hold it fast despite temptation, and bear fruit with perseverance. So it seems like the difference here between a faith that is born of God and a faith that isn't born of God is that one is disingenuous enthusiasm, whereas the other is genuine reception of the truth into a heart that is being what a heart should be. They hear the word with joy, but they don't have an honest and good heart. They receive the word with joy. Perhaps their friends are believing it. Perhaps their family has taught them it. Perhaps it's a fad. Perhaps it's emotional. Perhaps they hear about the kingdom of God and say, I, I want that. I'm in. Perhaps they hear that salvation is free. Really? Great. But there's something wrong about their hearts in the reception of that truth. I think it's interesting how we can be persuaded of things and believe in them even though we may not really fully understand what we're believing. For example, I grew up believing in God, in the existence of God. I grew up in a, in a religious home believing in God. From as early as I can remember until I was about 20, I had very strong conviction that there was a God. I mean, you talk to me, and man, Eli believes in God. But you know, my faith in God was faith. I was believing with joy. But my faith in God was really, it was not tested. In fact, when it was tested, it was shaken greatly. We can believe things because maybe our family taught us it but we don't really have the heart that truly understands what we're believing. You know, I just believe it so strongly because that's what I was raised with. I think a lot of people in different faiths are like that, you know? They haven't really heard the word for themselves. They haven't really digested it. They haven't really grasped the reasons for rightly believing in it. And so when I was 20, my faith in God was 21, actually, when I was 21, my faith in God was absolutely shaken. There was a time there where I was Unsure if there was a God at all. You know, totally unsure. Didn't know what to believe anymore. All of my naive faith in God was taken away. And from that place, God built me up. To have a a faith in God that's built upon something substantial. How do we know the difference between whether our faith is born of God or not? Sometimes we can tell, and sometimes we can't tell until it's tested. Remember in 1st Peter and turn there to 1st Peter chapter 1. 1st Peter chapter 1. God tests our faith. In 1st Peter chapter 1 verse 6, Peter says that we should be happy if we're in trials. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various temptations, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice greatly with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Faith in Christ is what saves you, but that faith is tested to see if it's real or not, if it's born of God or not. And it's interesting, back in the book of Galatians in chapter 5, Paul has confidence in the Galatians in the Lord that they will not adopt any other view. It's interesting that Paul's, Paul's confidence in Galatians 5 isn't that the Galatians are going to pull up their bootstraps and get things done, but he's confident in what the Lord can work and do in that situation. So in verse 10, he says, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. And in verse 5, he says, the opposite of following after these false teachers is that through the Spirit by faith... We wait for the hope of righteousness. It's through God's Spirit that we believe in righteousness through faith. It's through God's Spirit that we stand fast in the midst of temptation. Through His work. And so here's the, my basic conclusion. The doctrine of eternal security is true, but not because there's no such thing as warnings and apostasy. Nor because faith makes a business transaction with God that remains in force, even if we do not remain in the faith, as some people think. Some people think, man, you believe just once, business transactions done, you apostatize, you're still saved. I don't believe that's why... There is such a thing as eternal security. But eternal security is true because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And because the God who gives us to Christ and who brings us to faith will preserve us in the faith and he will keep us from evil as Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17. Remember in John 17, he says, I pray for all those that you've given to me and all that will believe on the ones, the apostles that I'm sending, that you would not take them out of the world, but that you'd keep them from the evil one. And so eternal security is true, not because these warnings aren't real warnings. Not because if you depart from the faith, you're going to be okay. If you depart from the faith, you're lost. But it's true because God holds you in His hand and will keep you in the faith. And as God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah about the work that he would do in his people, in the hearts of his people, actually, he said, I'm going to change their heart, right? I'm going to take out the stony heart. I'm going to take out that uncircumcised heart, the heart that doesn't listen, the stiff necked heart. I'm going to put a new heart in them that will listen to the word. And in Jeremiah 32, verse 40, he says, that I'm going to put my fear into them and they will not depart from me. And when God does that to a person, they can't depart. A real Christian, if we just want to put it this way, someone who's born of God cannot fall away and lose their salvation. Because it's not this business transaction that takes place. It's about trusting in God. And whoever trusts in God and hopes in God and believes in God, God will come through for that person. It's a relationship with God. He opens your eyes, you see the truth, and you believe in him. And believing in him, you're saved. Lastly, in conclusion, Paul turns his attention and expresses his feelings towards the false teachers in verse 10 and verse 12. And Paul tells us here that false teachers have much to look forward to on judgment day. Those who lead people astray are accountable in even a greater degree than even those who do not believe the gospel. And Paul doesn't care what authority they have or rank they have or status they have or good works they have or what fancy suits they have. He says in verse 10, whoever they are, they're going to receive judgment from God. Don't be wowed by appearances. Don't be wowed if those who are leading you astray look great or have a lot of status. Whoever they are, if the gospel is not there, if they're leading you away from it, God's judgment is upon them, Paul says. And in verse 12, he gives an extremely strong statement, almost with biting sarcasm. I wish that these guys would mutilate themselves. That's a strong statement, isn't it? The commentators are basically agreed that the meaning of this verse is that these guys are so interested in circumcision, I wish they'd just go all the way and castrate themselves. It's a shocking statement for Paul to say. And John Stott rightly comments, we may be quite sure that it is not due to an intemperate spirit nor to a thirst for revenge but due to his deep love for the people of God and the gospel of God that he says it that is it's not because paul doesn't love these troublers i mean paul was a troubler himself at one point but it's because he loves these people the galatians so much paul knows there's going to be false teachers at one point paul says not all men have faith not all men are going to believe And there's some men that are leading others astray and it pains me and I wish that they'd just be cut off. I'm sure that's hard for him to say. But that's how serious he takes all this and how serious we should as well. So in closing this morning, brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in him is our only hope. And that's something that's so serious. We must believe and hold to our hope unto the end. We will be tested. There will be false teachers. There will be persecution. There will be temptation to give it all up because you know what? The cost is just too high. Following Jesus is just too costly in this world. But we need to be reminded of what Jesus and the apostles have told us that no, the cost is not too much. If you gain the whole world and lose your own soul, you've lost everything. Jesus came to save sinners, and it's ours to trust solely in him no matter what comes, come come all the persecution the world can throw at us. There's only two kinds of people in the world. You're either benefited by Christ, or you're not, and you're obligated to do all of the law. So I pray that we would take this very seriously, take these warnings very seriously, that we would stand against all temptation to fall away. Stand fast in that freedom that he's given to us. But at the same time, take courage that he that began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. If your faith has been tested and it's stood, and if it's of God, then he will see you to the very end. So with that, that's my perspective on this issue of apostasy. Apostasy. You may disagree with me and that's okay. That's okay. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you hold us in your hands. I thank you Jesus, that you have prayed for us that our faith wouldn't fail and that you, you intercede for us and that you prayed, Lord, that you would keep us from evil. And I thank you that you will do that. And I, I pray for everyone here, Lord, who has believed in Jesus, put their hope in him. I pray that you'd keep them from evil, Lord. You'd keep us from evil. And Lord, that we would rejoice when we're tempted because then it shows that our faith is really pure gold and born from you. Thank you that we can have assurance and confidence that you are with us and will not forsake us and that we belong to you. Thank you that this race will come to an end one day, Lord, and that we will be brought to your everlasting kingdom. And most of all, Lord, I thank you for your great love in sending Jesus to benefit evil sinners like us freely. Mm -hmm. Help us to see that, help us to remember it, help us to not forget it. Thank you that that is all of our hope. May it continue to be our hope to the very end. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.